Some years ago, I watched a, a comedy uh, show, and on this comedy show, there was a man who was in great financial debt from some really bad decisions that he had made. And in <clears throat> the show, someone was talking about bankruptcy. You know, you should declare bankruptcy. You know, and then all your debts will be resolved and all of this. And, and so the guy just walked out of his office and said, I declare bankruptcy. And they're like, it doesn't work like that. You know, um, yeah, there's actually things you have to do and there's consequences for doing it. You can't just declare something. So how about being a Christian? Do you just become a Christian by saying, I declare I am a Christian? And then you're a Christian. Sometimes I wonder if it works that way. You talk to people, a lot of you, when I've talked to you personally, have shared about those kinds of experiences you've had with friends, even family members who say, yeah, I'm a Christian, but they live in sin. They, they, they live adulterous lifestyles with boyfriends and girlfriends. They're not married. But yeah, I'm a Christian. And sadly, even many churches today condone that and say that's okay. And what the Bible says sin, they don't say is sin. You know, Can you call yourself a Christian just by declaring it as so? But we come to a transition point in the Gospel of John. We've spent the last 12 chapters looking at Jesus' signs of glory. These signs that he did that bear witness to the glory of who he is as the Son of God and Savior of sinners. And now we transition to what some commentators have called the hour of glory. Uh, which is the second half of the book. We just, as we were reading John 13, you notice glory was mentioned even something like five times in one or two verses. We're, we're transitioning to this. Now is the hour where Jesus will be glorified. And all of this is pointing forward to the cross, the great hour of glory. But as we transition to the second half of the book and we walk towards the cross, we have this section of John that is commonly known as the farewell discourse. Jesus has concluded his public ministry, and now he's turning to this intimate time of teaching to the disciples in this farewell discourse, where he's now talking to the twelve specifically and preparing them for their roles and who they need to be and how they need to think as Jesus goes to the cross. All of these signs that John gives us in this book are so that we might believe and have life in his name. And we'll get to that purpose statement in John 20 in due course. But all of these things are given so that we might believe. So we've come to this point now in John where I hope everyone sitting here believes. I hope everyone sitting here is, yes, I want to be a Christian. But now the question is, what do we need to do to follow Christ? And Jesus now is turning to the disciples and laying out what they need to know if you want to follow me. So we are going to be unpacking in the weeks ahead some of the most famous sections of Scripture, 
uh, as we, we look at uh, today as Jesus is foot washing. We'll look at uh, next week in my father's house. There are many rooms. Um, I go a place to prepare for you. We will look at the famous uh, abide in me um, sayings in chapter 15, uh, teachings about the Holy Spirit who will come as the helper. And, uh, and all of that will climax in chapter 17 to Jesus' high priestly prayers. This is a really beautiful and amazing and theologically rich part of uh, the scriptures as well as of John itself. And it's all about, so you want to follow Jesus? Well, this is what it looks like. And so that's what we're going to be unpacking in these days as we approach the cross. What we learned this morning is Jesus begins this teaching to his disciples. If you want to follow Jesus, you must be a foot washer. You must be a foot washer. So this morning we're going to unpack the meaning of foot washing. What, what does that does it mean? Does it mean we should all take our shoes off right now and go around and literally wash each other's feet? Or is it pointing to something far deeper of which this foot washing is an illustration. Uh, that's what we're going to look at uh, this morning. And in fact, what I'm going to argue is that f- foot washing is an illustration of the deeper importance that we are to love one another. We are to love one another in a deep and a profound way, which Jesus is going to model in chapter 13. So we're going to look at this at this passage in two ways. Jesus shows real love in this foot washing uh, ceremony or moment. And that Jesus shows real love, that real love is the way of discipleship. And so the focus will be on love this morning, of which Jesus gives us a memorable example of it in washing his disciples' feet. So let's look at this first movement first, Jesus shows real love. <clears throat> Jesus shows real love, number one. And I'm going to give you a, a number of ways that this love is shown in this text. So number one, Jesus shows that real love is a love that serves. A love that serves. We see in verses 4 and 5 that Jesus rose from supper and he laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Here Jesus shows that real love serves Jesus did something that servants in a household should have been doing. Washing somebody's feet was a, was a very low, menial task. You know, this is not like today where we have, we have you know, shoes that cover our whole feet and socks and we can shower uh, daily if we want to and we remain clean and we walk on pavement we drive in our cars, and our feet really don't get that dirty. I think just if you've got to sludge through some, some snow, that's about as bad as it gets here 
most of the time. But in Jesus' day, everybody wore sandals. So, and they didn't shower regularly. And there was dust everywhere. And, I, you know, you guys kind of know, I don't want to be gross here, but, you know, if you've ever worn sandals, you know, if you've ever gone somewhere, there's kind of a funk that, uh, you know, that happens. And uh, your feet smell and get stinky. And just imagine having those kind, that kind of feet and that kind of odor day by day. And then to be the one to have to wash those feet. You know, this, this was the work of servants. This was not the work of a Lord and a master. Right? This was certainly not work that the Pharisees would be doing or people in high positions. You know, Pilate's not going around washing other people's feet. Herod's not going around washing other people's feet. Feet. This is low and menial work. And Jesus shows his disciples that real love is a love that serves, that takes on the humble tasks and roles for others. Real love is a love that serves. Secondly, he shows that real love is a love that sanctifies. It's a love that sanctifies. Look at it, verses 6 to 11. When he came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, what, am I do- what I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. So Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, the one who has Bathe does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you, for he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said not all of you are clean. But what Peter didn't understand is that Jesus' service of cleansing them is something far deeper than washing some grime off of his feet. It was about cleansing his soul. It was about being spiritually clean and in union with Jesus in that. And I love how Peter kind of goes in. He sounds like someone making a case for immersion baptism. Kind of sounds like a Baptist here. I'll say with love to my Baptist friends. Well, then wash my whole body. Wash everything. But he says, no, your feet are fine, if I to paraphrase it. The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean. But Jesus' love is not merely a love to make people feel good. It's a love to cleanse and to sanctify. And all of this, of course, we read as we know that the cross is coming. But we see that, especially in verse 8, if Jesus doesn't serve us, if he doesn't serve Peter, Peter will not be cleansed. Peter said, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Thirdly, real love is a love that receives. A love that receives, or in other words, that shows hospitality. Jesus has this dinner put together. He is hosting his friends, his closest disciples. And is serving them in that 
that context. And we see in verse 20 as well where Jesus says to the disciples, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me. And whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. That Jesus is encouraging and showing his disciples that real love is hospitable. It receives one another. It's a, it's a kind of love that welcomes and brings in people. I hope that that is true of us as a church, that we are a church that receives and welcomes in one another and has each other into our homes and that we're not a we're not a church where people just kind of come do their thing and then go and that there's no relational connection jesus is modeling hospitality to us here fourthly jesus shows that real love is a love that extends to enemies a love that extends to enemies even as Jesus washed the feet of Judas Iscariot, who he knew would betray him. So think about that. What would you do if you were washing people's feet in this really base, menial, really it's a kind of an embarrassing act, really, to take that, that position in society to wash others' feet. And then you come to someone you know that's going to betray you and get you crucified, executed. How would you feel? And yet Jesus even washed Judas's feet. And here we have this Old Testament fulfillment. We read Isaiah, or we, excuse me, we read Psalm 41 this morning, and Psalm 41:9 is cited in chapter 18. I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. Fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. Just to draw out the, the extent of this offense even more, again, we're in an ancient Near Eastern kind of Asian Semitic culture where the highest honor you can show to someone else is to invite them into your home and feed, give them bread and food. And Judas comes in this context, knowing he's going to betray Jesus. And yet Jesus nevertheless serves him and loves his enemy and extends hospitality to a traitor. That is what I call real love. Fifth, Jesus shows that real love is a love that extends to unreliable friends and disciples. A love that extends to unreliable friends and disciples. Look at verse 38. Peter, notice that Peter keeps getting it wrong (laughs) in this section as he does. Peter is one of those guys that speaks before thinking, you know, and uh, he's already just told Jesus, don't wash my feet. And then Jesus, I need to. He says, well, then wash my whole body. You know, he's just not quite there. And then talk about being unreliable. He tells Jesus, I will lay my life down for you. 
And in verse 38, or 37, excuse me. Um, oh, no, 38, excuse me, that's right. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. And when the rubber hits the road, and Peter's there watching Jesus as a prisoner on his way to the cross, and he's asked, aren't you one of his disciples? No. You mean he even curses? He swears? I do not know the man. Talk about an unreliable disciple. Nevertheless, Jesus washes Peter's feet too. He knows how unreliable Peter is. He knows how fallen his disciples are, and yet he extends love even even to them. So we've talked about Jesus shows a real love, is a love that serves, that sanctifies, that receives, that extends to enemies, extends to unreliable friends. And now six, it's a love that sacrifices everything. A love that sacrifices everything. I love how John opens this chapter and opens the second half of his gospel with this statement. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Jesus loved his disciples all the way to the cross. Jesus did not abandon them when the going got tough. He didn't in that final hour when he's like, oh, this is really happening, walk away. He loved them faithfully to the end. And in that way, too, and a seventh point uh, under this first point, Jesus shows that a love, a real love is a love that never ends. It goes all the way through He will lay down his life for us. And he still loves us to this day. So Jesus shows that real love is a love that serves, sanctifies, receives, extends to enemies, extends to unreliable friends and disciples. It sacrifices everything and it never ends. Now, that's a pretty tall order. And I have to say, how different is Jesus' love from the world? What is love in the world? Love is something that you give as long as it works for you. I will love this person until I don't or until they hurt me. And then my love's gone. I'm going somewhere else. Some people's love is bought with money or Promises of fame or receiving things. It's a kind of uh, uh, prostituting love. Love in this world is given as long as somebody serves you. And then I'll show that person love if they serve me. But otherwise, probably not. Love certainly today doesn't deal with sanctification, being concerned about the, the sanctity uh, of others. It's just we'll live and let live. That's loving. 
It's, it's, the world would say it's hateful if you tell somebody that they're sinning or you try to help them be sanctified. They would see that as hate, not love. Again, worldly love receives those that can pay you back in some way. You know, you invite people over who you like. You wouldn't invite people over that are different from you or that might be troublesome or might not be able to pay you back at all. You love people so that you have a position in society. That's worldly love. Love certainly doesn't extend to enemies. The the media exemplifies that every minute of the day. Um, Certainly love doesn't extend, worldly love doesn't extend to unreliable friends. You know, if they give up on you, you're going to give up on them. Or if they're just too much of a hassle, you're just going to give up. Worldly love certainly does not sacrifice everything. And worldly love is something that can stop at any moment when it no longer suits you. Worldly love is the absolute antithesis of real love and of the love that Jesus displays in this chapter and in this gospel. And while this kind of real love is a really tall order and one that we, if we're honest, fail at daily, it's nevertheless the way of discipleship. And Jesus shows that here. He shows real love is the way of discipleship. So let's look at that in the second movement this morning. Jesus shows real love is the way of discipleship. So you want to follow Jesus. So you call yourself a Christian. And if that is the case, and I hope it is, and we look at real love as the way, then why are there so many problems with love, even in the church? You know, how many people have left a church or gone to another church because they didn't feel loved or, or welcomed? This is a common problem, and I'm sure we will experience the problem in our church too. I pray that we will fight against it, and I pray that we will do our best as the body of Christ to love each other well with this kind of love. But it is a problem even in the church. So I want to unpack how we should think about this problem and how we should strive to practice real love together as the church. So first of all, I want to argue here that Jesus is not setting in place a third sacrament like the Lord's Supper or baptism in foot washing. There are some uh, Christian denominations today, uh, not many but some, that view foot washing as like a third sacrament or third ordinance where you have a ceremony we literally wash each other's feet. I think even the Pope, like, ceremonially kind of sprinkles, um, washes the feet of uh, the cardinals or or others. But that ceremonial kind of use is far from Jesus' point. If we leave today just thinking, well, as long as I've washed other people's feet, then I've shown true love, we've entirely missed the whole point of what Jesus is doing here. Again, as I've said already, Jesus is practicing 
something in his culture that makes sense in his culture and is part of his culture. So whenever you'd go into somebody's house in the ancient Near East, there would be a bowl of water so that you could wash your own feet before you came in. It's like in Norwegian households, you take your shoes off when you come in so you don't track the, the dirt and dust or salt into the house, right? Every culture like has its, I think in a lot of Asian cultures, you leave your shoes outside the door rather than inside. So every culture has has ways of dealing with cleanliness and entering a home and what you should do. So Jesus is using a culturally appropriate way of demonstrating that. And in fact, he gets slighted in another dinner when the Pharisees didn't give him a bowl to wash his feet. So we even see cultural uh, faux pas happening in his day. But the point of Jesus, is, Jesus using foot washing here is the menial baseness of it. It's that it's something that the lowest of low should be doing for somebody else, not someone who is your Lord and teacher. And Jesus says, if you want to be my disciple, you will be a servant of all. And that's his point. So we could easily just kind of start washing each other's feet and then going off proudly thinking, all right, I've done my bit. I truly love and still have very hard hearts and selfish hearts. And we'd be missing the entire point of what Jesus did. So Jesus is not instituting a third ordinance, not a third sacrament. But he is showing that it is a mark of discipleship, a central mark. That is really, truly loving others as he has loved us. We get the whole point of foot washing in verse 34 and 35. When Jesus says, and he, and, he, and he gets to the point, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I loved you, you also are to love one another. And by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. This whole point is, in fact, bookended in chapter 13 as a whole. If you look at the beginning of verse 13, or chapter 13, verse 1, it's about Jesus who loved his disciples and loved them to the end. In the end of chapter 13, deals with Jesus laying down his life for his friends. So Peter says, I will lay down my life for you. Jesus tells them that he's going to deny him three times, but this all reminds us of what Jesus will say in chapter 15, greater love is no one than this than he who lays his life down for his friends. And that's why Jesus is cleansing them before he goes to the cross. This whole section is bookended with love as the principle. And Jesus gives a new commandment. I, he says again, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. So the whole heart of foot washing and the meaning of foot washing is to express true and real love. And furthermore, when we love as Jesus loved, which is, by the way, why it's called a new commandment, love was commanded all the way in the Old Testament, love your neighbor as yourself. 
but it's a new commandment because now Jesus is giving the ultimate expression of love, which is laying your life down for your friends and this becoming the servant of all, becoming the slave of all. That's why he calls it a new commandment here. He also says that when you do this, you will be a witness to the world. You will be a witness to the world. Jesus says, by this, in verse 35, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So if we are concerned about bearing witness in Norway, if we are concerned about your families and our families and our friends and unbelieving co-workers and neighbors in the city that goes on on this Lord's Day as if everything is normal and all is good. If we want to make an impact, that impact actually begins by loving each other. By loving each other. I have heard more than one uh, testimony of people who came to Christ because they saw that, pe- that Christians loved each other differently than the world loves people. And they came to Christ because they saw something different in the way that the church treated one another. No, sometimes we forget that as Christians because we see the faults. We see the crack lines. We, we, we're normal people too. We have grudges. We, have, we sin against each other. We hurt each other. And sometimes we can just think that, you know, <clears throat> the church is just hopelessly messed up like Peter. But from the outside, people see a difference. So if we are concerned about bearing witness as Christians and as a church together, it begins, as Jesus begins with his final teachings to the disciples, with loving each other. But I want to say one more thing about Jesus showing that real love is the way of discipleship. He also shows that it's not as easy as it looks. It's not as, it's, I think all of us can affirm that it's a good thing to love each other. <laughs> I, hope all of us, I hope I'm not saying anything controversial here. This right, Yeah, of course. But you know, when it gets down to it, when we get to know each other more, when we see each other's faults more, uh, it's not always as, that easy. And Peter gives that great living illustration of it in the close of chapter 13. He says, Jesus, I will lay my life down for you. And Jesus says, are you kidding? (laughs) You will deny me three times before the rooster crows. And think about what Jesus could have done there. He could have cast Peter out and said, you're hopeless. I don't love you anymore because you betrayed me. But we know, as as I'm sure we've all read the whole Gospel of John before, Peter's going to be restored in the end, in chapter 21. And Jesus is going to say, do you love me, Peter? Do you love me, Peter? Do you love me, Peter? He says it three times, even as Peter denied. Just imagine being Peter, how like embarrassed you would be looking at the risen Jesus. Do you love me, Peter? Do you love me, Peter? Do you love me? And then he talks, he restores Peter, tells him to, Jesus tells him, feed my sheep. 
And then he also tells Peter that you are going to follow me. You will follow me and you're going to be taken to a place you don't want to go. And you're going to be, and they're going to take your clothes. And as we know from church history, Peter is going to be crucified upside down for Savior. But Peter got there through a lot of messiness, didn't he? And how true is that of us too? How many times have we failed Jesus? You know, we come to the Lord very messed up, right? We come messed up relationally, sexually, morally, intellectually, emotionally. We come messed up to the cross. And what a great way to end this statement of real love by Jesus, as we know, will restore Peter. You know, Jesus came to love really messed up people. And that includes us. And sometimes we can think, well, maybe he'll forgive the things I did before I became a Christian. But now that I said I'm a Christian, he's not going to. But look, at these are Jesus' disciples. They've all expressed faith in him. They believe in him, they love him, and they're still messing up. And Jesus washes their feet and shows mercy to them. So gospel love, as we see, is a one last thing we can tack on to what real love is, is a merciful love. Real love shows mercy. Gospel restorative mercy. So I pray for us as a church family and as we grow that we would be people who follow Jesus in the path of real love for each other that serves and sacrifices that that uh, that strives to sanctify and encourage each other in that way and and is never failing even even though we will never do it perfectly I pray that we would be known as people of mercy who forgive and people who are quick to renew. I pray that we would be everything that is signified in the washing of dusty, stinky sandal feet. That we'd be the people who are first to serve and do the menial tasks and to bear witness that we might not only transform our church, but that we also might bear witness to the onlooking world.